Last week I received a surprise in the mail. I wandered into the copy room to check my mailbox and there it was. Uh, it was this envelope mailed from a bookshop in Florida. I wasn't waiting for any deliveries and I couldn't for the life of me figure out what the envelope contained. So I tore it open and pulled out this slim book. How to try. I racked my brain uh, trying to remember whether I had even heard of this book and I hadn't. Then I started to get suspicious. Was someone sending me a message? How to try? Uh, does someone think I'm not trying? Like I'm phoning it in? Uh, uh, or, or maybe it was a compliment. Uh, they think I'm so naturally gifted that I don't need to try. Uh, I just do my amazing thing and I don't even need to learn or practice or anything like that. So I researched this book on Amazon and saw that it was published the day before I received it. So whoever sent it to me uh, really, really thinks I need it uh, on the first day of publication. So if it was you that sent me this book, thank you, I am reading it on vacation. Uh, and second, what's your point? Is this an insult or a compliment? Because it is unclear to me which it is, and you really need to try harder at stating your point clearly. Uh, I have a book uh, that will help you to try harder. Then I read the subtitle of the book, which you might not be able to see, Design Thinking and Church Innovation. Design Thinking and Church Innovation. Uh, although I am reading it, I must say that that phrase doesn't have me licking my lips in anticipation. Uh, I don't know what design thinking is, but I'm sure I'm not going to like it. It might demand too much from me, too much learning, too much creativity, too much admitting I don't know it all, and too much opening my mind to new ideas and new ways of doing things. I hope it's not a gimmick, an easy fix to all your church problems, the foolproof way to lead your church into growth and vitality in post-pandemic days. You see, I'm tired of off-the-shelf solutions to problems. Call me cynical, but I've read too many books on the secret keys to unlocking your brilliance attended too many seminars on the five simple steps that will transform your church, heard too many podcasts on the solution to becoming the man, husband, father, pastor that God wants me to be. I hope this book is not the best thing since sliced bread, because the greatest thing since sliced bread usually isn't. And even if it is, it's not the true and living bread, the bread that came down from heaven and satisfies our hunger. We are in week five of John chapter six, the final week. Yes, 
seriously. If anyone can think of anything new to say about Jesus being the bread of life, text me. I need to know it. In three years, when this comes up again, I'm certainly not going to be here. Actually, I love today's reading. In this long conversation, Jesus has given a lot of room for misunderstanding and plenty of opportunities for people to take offence. All this talk of eating his body and drinking his blood. Is it any wonder that the Romans thought the early church was a deviant sect that practised cannibalism? People have been outraged that Jesus has talked about drinking blood, a practice explicitly forbidden in Hebrew law. People are also upset because of the self-focused core of Jesus' message in this dialogue. He is the bread of life. He is superior to Moses and his body and blood are better than the miraculous manna that their ancestors consumed. It's all too much for some people. They're angry, they're offended, and they're out of here. And no doubt, with a sense of impending disappointment, Jesus asks the twelve, Are you going to leave too? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else can we go? You are the greatest thing since, well, since sliced manna. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Think about it. It's okay to say yes. You think God is going to act in a way that relieves your suffering but you continue for another agonising day. You expect God to mend your relationship and make it joyful once again, but it drags on into deeper frustration. You believed God would answer your prayers for a new job, a blessing for your loved one, a healing, but those things did not happen and you're disappointed. I painfully remember a humiliation I suffered when I was at college. I was a keen young Christian. My faith was new and exciting. I wanted everyone to share my joy. I was a bit of a pain, to be honest. And because I was vocal in my profession of faith, I got a reputation for being a fundamentalist which I may or may not have deserved. And so I was invited to speak at a debate in the university on the topic of evolution versus six-day creation. They predicted, correctly as it happens, that I'd speak for the six-day creationist team. The truth is, I didn't really know what I believed on the subject. I'd never read much about it, but I thought that as a keen biblical Christian, I should believe in a six-day creation and not believe in evolution. 
So I hurriedly read some books that would back up my literal reading of Genesis, learned a few talking points, memorised some unanswerable proofs for the six days of creation and disproofs of evolution, and went confidently into the debate. Where I was annihilated. It was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. I felt let down by God. My motives had been wonderful. I was marching forth to war to defend the truth of scripture and the honour of Christ. I was stepping into the lion's den to face hostile unbelievers and I would overcome through my faith and the love of God. And I didn't overcome. It was as if, despite all my worthy motives, God didn't care. Like he left me alone to be crushed by people who knew much more than I did. A few years later, I stopped believing in the God who created uh, the world in six days. I accepted that if the great weight of scientific opinion was that God chose to create all this in billions of years, then that was God's prerogative, and I became okay with that. I learned how it is possible to be faithful to scripture without taking literally parts in which the writers were not being literal, parts where they were telling a story or using picture language. And I now see that God loved me in that moment of the debate. Sure, he knew I was misguided, impressionable and a little unbalanced, but he loved my heart. How I was ready to be a fool in the eyes of others, even if I was probably presenting obstacles to them coming to faith in Christ. Disappointment with God. Have you ever felt it? When I was smarting from my humiliation and licking my wounds, I didn't consider dumping God because I guess I had the same rhetorical question that Peter asked. Where else can I go? Sure, I felt let down by God, but where else could I go? Even at the age of 19, I had experienced enough of life to know that nothing else would give me the fulfilment that Christ gave me. He really did have the words of eternal life. You see, it is possible to be oriented towards faith and still be angry with God. To be a disciple and still be mad at Jesus to have questions, doubts and troubles and still conclude, where else can I go? Christ has the words of eternal life. My experience is like Peter Hitchens, a British journalist. Peter is the brother of the late Christopher Hitchens, a loud and convinced spokesperson for atheism before his sad and untimely death. Christopher described himself not just as an atheist, but as an anti-theist. And that was how it was for his brother Peter too. 
In his book, The Rage Against God, Peter says that he, like many others in his generation, was sure that, quote, our civilization had grown out of the nursery myths of God, angels and heaven. We had modern medicine, penicillin, jet engines, the welfare state, the United Nations and science, which explained everything that needed to be explained. But when Peter was 30, he began a slow return to faith in Christ. He married in a church and the service had a deep impact on him. I can recall the way the words of the Church of England's marriage service awakened thoughts in me that I had long suppressed, he says. I was entering into my inheritance as a Christian, as a man and as a human being. The brothers were now going in separate directions. While I was making my gradual, hesitant way back to the altar rail, my brother Christopher's passion against God grew more virulent and confident, Peter says. As he became more certain about the non-existence of God, I have become more convinced that we cannot know such a thing in the way we know anything else, and so must choose whether to believe or not. I think it is better by far to believe. I'm sure there are not as many atheists as people think. I am convinced that there are very many modern folks, especially in our younger generations, who think of themselves as atheists but are not, in fact. For them, there is meaning and purpose in life. There is something outside human beings, an intelligence, a principle that gives order and the framework to make sense of life. They might not name it God, they may call it the universe, providence, science, uh, new age philosophy, traditional wisdom schools, but whatever they call it, it does what God does, provides meaning but without the personal nature of God. Why not use God's name? Well, maybe that name has become linked in their minds and experience with judgment, rejection, fear, even clergy abuse. Now, we would protest and say, uh, no, no, don't associate God with those things. That isn't God not the God revealed in the fullness of Christ. All those people are waiting for is for the church, for you and me, to show them the love of God, that aspect of the Creator that they have not yet experienced. And they will come to a living experience of the God who fills us, satisfies us, and who is the bread of life. It's not design thinking. It's not even science. It's simpler than that. It's as simple as bread. Where else can we go but the one who has the words of eternal life? Amen.